Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant Glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 22nd of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It seems almost unimaginable, but 200,000 Ukrainian refugees could arrive in Ireland in the coming weeks. At least that's what government ministers will be asked to plan for when the Cabinet meets today. The pressure the refugee crisis will put on the country will add to the impact the war is already having and the additional pressures expected as a result of the war. Uh, Food shortage, fuel shortage and an energy shortage are feared and already prices are soaring. Inflation at 5% could increase to 10% and could go as high as 15%. If making ends meet is already difficult, it could become very difficult if prices increase by 15%, but income doesn't increase in line with the rate of inflation. A 15% public sector pay increase would cost three and a half billion euro. Three and a half billion euro is a lot of money for a government that is coming under pressure on all fronts. A 15% pay increase in the public sector would put pressure on employers in the private sector to increase pay in the same line. But is this possible? And if pay rises across the board, will that lead to further price increases, spinning inflation into a never-ending cycle. Neil MacDonald is uh, the Chief Executive of ISME. That's the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association and on the line with us. Uh, A very good morning to you, Neil. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, We'll hope uh, that the war will end soon and uh, that some of uh, these problems won't be realisable. But if that doesn't happen, uh, there's the prospect of the perfect storm, isn't there? Yes, unfortunately, uh, Michael, you know, before this dreadful war started, we were looking, um, it's easy to forget that just a few weeks ago, uh, you know, how how far away January and February already um, feel. But we were looking at inflationary pressures in the economy due to a really prolonged period of quantitative easing by, by central banks all around the world. Um, that has been stopping uh, with the, the United States first and then the UK and, and uh, the EU is following. So we were looking at inflationary pressures in any case. 
uh, but what we've seen now due to uh, a, a war in, in the Near East, um, fr- you know, from the place from which we get most of our grain and most of our gas and fuel in Europe, uh, obviously this is not going to be painless and we are looking at uh, quite a serious level of inflation in the near future. Okay, and can it be offset by pay increases? The the first thing that naturally uh, any worker looks at um, when they see their purchasing power decreased, um, the, the, you know, the two things they, they look at are, are their outgoings and what's coming in. And, and the second part of that, obviously, is what's coming in from their employer in the, in the form of wages. It's completely natural, it is to be expected, that people will look uh, to, to seek to increase their wages. But especially in the service economy and in the private economy, the extent to which wages can be raised is actually governed in the end because that has to be recovered from customers. The, the ultimately, employers uh, in making their wage decisions are governed by how much they can recover from the customer at the end of the mm. day. There, there isn't a third source of finance if you're running a business. You have to recover uh, your labour cost in your cost of sales. So if you have headroom to put up prices, you, you can do so. But of course, the problem there Michael is that that feeds the cycle so um, uh, businesses put up costs and then employees seek further wage uh, rises and what we want to avoid is a wage price spiral Hmm. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, that if uh, the public sector pay claims are successful that we could be heading into that well, potentially, yes. And of course, um, workers, you know, benchmark their own pay against what someone in the public service doing a similar job do. Again, that's a completely natural and understandable uh, reaction. We have to remember, though, two things uh, about the public service. Firstly, the public service in Ireland enjoys a premium over the private sector that is not visible anywhere else in Europe other than in the Mediterranean countries. Portugal, Spain, Italy and Greece and in those countries the private sector wages are far lower than they are in Ireland. So our uh, public servants already enjoy a really considerable pay premium Um, and secondly when times are bad like this and the economies go into you know, potentially economic turmoil, and we are looking at, uh, you know, we are looking at a period of considerable difficulty. Just as we thought we were coming out of a pandemic, uh, public servants are the most insulated from the, uh, you know, the, the the bad weather effects of of a turning economy. And we would ask public servants to bear that in mind and and to modify pay expectations accordingly. Mm, perhaps so, but we get back uh, to the pressures uh, that the government is facing on all fronts. Uh, they're to announce a €12 million Euro package today for tillage farmers, just as an example, before we get uh, to another uh, 190,000 refugees arriving on top of the 10,000 who've already arrived here? Yes, uh, there, there are so many moving parts to this, but let's not forget that uh, you know what we're talking about in respect of tillage farmers is, is effectively a national defensive measure. We're saying mm. Our, our ability to import grain and Ireland already imports people are not aware of the extent to which for example our bread supply is dependent on imports from the UK 
So, you know, what the Department of Agriculture is planning there is a purely defensive measure. And as we know from the Commission on Defence last year, you do have to pay for defence. And it's not always uh, about guns and bullets. A lot of the time, it's about bread. And and they're the sort of measures that the Department of Agriculture is looking at now. Mm, Because we could have a a food shortage. uh, Because a lot of the grain, apparently, in this country comes from Ukraine, apart from all of the other pressures leading into this, like the price of fertiliser for that matter. Uh, There could be a fuel shortage, an energy shortage. We could be going back to the days of the 1970s where getting a a fill of petrol uh, was very difficult to do. Yes, indeed. Hopefully it's not going to come to that. And and Ireland at the end of that that gas supply chain, in reality, very little of our uh, natural gas, for example, uh, originates uh, from Russia. Having said that, the market price is not set uh, where it comes from. You know, we're in a we're in a free and open market, so there is no way we are going to avoid a significant um, uptick in in those prices. And, you know, it's not just fuel and grain. We're, we're seeing prices across the board, so construction intermediates, you know, uh, structural steel, aluminium, prefabricated uh, windows, uh, prefabricated uh, um, uh, struts and, and so on for, for roof construction. Uh, all, all We are seeing, unfortunately, a really significant in, uh, uptick in prices across the board at the very time, for example, when we're planning to substantially increase our, our construction of social and affordable housing. And, and what are you suggesting to your members to expect in terms of pay claims? Well, we we came in to the year, you know, getting people ready uh, to to have their head heads around um, wage inflation in or around the rate of it, the rate of inflation, um, and CPI is is now actually considerably higher than even we put it. You know, it's it's now over five and a half percent. So um, businesses are going to have to prepare for. You know, it is completely natural to have pay expectations um, around that level. The problem is a very great many of our businesses, and especially the domestic service sector, has not returned to pre-pandemic levels of sales. So it is difficult to understand how many of them are going to meet pay demands in that respect. Of course, some sectors, as I said, construction being a very good example, is is now going extremely well, but the difficulty is they're exp- uh, uh, experiencing price pressures that are non-wage related at the moment. So mm. um, un- wages are going to go up in line with re- with inflation, um, maybe not quite at the same rate as, uh, of, uh, as the rate of inflation, but that also means, unfortunately, um, for the c- citizen shopper or the person buying a house, that they are going to see price inflation when they purchase. That's, that is not avoidable. One follows the other, unfortunately. Okay, but it may be a question of needing to get uh, your pay increased in line with inflation, whether that's 5.5% or it goes to 10 or 15% or whatever the case may be, in order to be able to put food on the table, uh, at least in the way that you uh, would be accustomed to, uh, because you have other obligations like paying your mortgage. And yes. there, and therein lies the elephant in the room, doesn't it? Because you mentioned the central banks and uh, the ECB now is to stop buying government bonds, and then it's to start looking at increasing uh, interest rates. 
Yes, and, and traditionally, they, you know, the old uh, monetary theory about how we tamp down inflation is to increase uh, uh, interest rates. They have been at historically low rates for two decades. <clears throat> a, a lot of people, now having said that, as people well know, in, in Ireland, because of our, our unique legal system, uh, you know, that despite the fact that we are making no interest on our deposit accounts, and not alone are we not making interest on them, you know, those businesses that may have a million or more in the bank are paying negative interest rates. Um, but the, the difficulty with traditional monetary theory now at this point is if we uh, increase interest rates right now, you know, at, at a time when prices all around are, are going up, and when we're trying to build out, um, you know, really sorely needed accommodation, we may actually worsen a potential uh, recession. So, and of course, Ireland no longer has its own monetary policy because we're part of the euro. So these decisions on, on our monetary policy will not be taken in, in Dublin. They'll be taken in Frankfurt. And um, that, that is a very difficult position for society and for government to be in. Mm. Uh, and it could be extreme uh, because they're at historically low rates and uh, we know that they can go very high. So if, let's say, you're paying 4% interest on your mortgage and that will go to 16%, uh, you could see people who perhaps are, are paying €2,000, maybe paying €8,000. In reality, and I, I think, Michael, you and I are old mm. enough to remember when this happened before in the 90s. Um, in reality, the banks know that they, you, you know, th- th- that kind of interest rate increase um, would, Cripple would, would cancel out people's earnings altogether. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's simply not going to be recoverable. In reality, what will happen is that banks will not recover those rates. Luckily, a very strange thing has been happening in Ireland for the last number of years where fixed rate, uh, the pr- price of fixed rate mortgages dipped below that of variable rates. So uh, thankfully, uh, many people who have purchased in the last few years have bought in at fixed rates and they are now insulated from this. Uh, unfortunately, people on, on variable rates are not, but the banks know that there is no point in asking a person more on their mortgage than, the, than they're actually earning in total. So while theoretically what you said is mm-hmm. true, Michael, in reality the banks know that they are just going to have to suck this up for a while until this washes through as it did in, in the currency crisis in the 90s. Okay. The, I suppose just to conclude, Neil, I don't think there's any obvious answers uh, to what uh, lies uh, in prospect at least. No, uh, and, and unfortunately what we are witnessing now is, are, are, are the offshoots of, of the actions of one person. Um, when, and I think uh, aside from you know, relying on, on uh, the, the citizenry and the army of, of Ukraine uh, to control uh, this, this war to the best of, of their ability, we also need to think of, of giving ways uh, for Vladimir Putin to identify an off-ramp to this madness because he, he is the only one that can stop this war right now. 
Okay. Unfortunately, uh, there's no sign of that uh, in sight, uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed for joining us. As always, Neil MacDonald is uh, the Chief Executive of ISME, that's the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. The Irish government uh, and indeed the Irish people doing everything possible to help people fleeing from war and uh, the death and uh, destruction that uh, the Russian army is meeting out on the Ukrainian people Uh, and that's why we've already accepted about 10,000 people into this country and as you've been hearing the government will today talk about plans to accept 200,000 people into the country uh, and integrate them into society as best as possible, as quickly as possible. What does this mean for other people who have come from other war-torn countries uh, around the world? Well, let's speak to Lucky Kambule, who is uh, the co-founder of the Movement of Asylum Seekers in Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Lucky, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I I think you believe that the approach that the state here is taking to the refugees from Ukraine is the right uh, approach, uh, and totally appropriate but you've said it it reveals a glaring inequality in terms of how the immigration system in this country has dealt with other people fleeing from war-torn areas good morning and uh, thank you for having me and uh, indeed you are right in terms of uh, the reaction by the government in uh, taking care of our fellow uh, refugees from uh, uh, the ukraine and the way that they have uh, swiftly, uh, you know, uh, helped them to settle in Ireland after fleeing uh, the horrible uh, experience uh, by the wars uh, through Putin there. And uh, our, our, my uh, reaction to that was that that is welcome, well done. And uh, to just remember that there are people who have been in, in the country already coming from other countries who are stuck in hotels, emergency hotels and hostels with no services at all that have been rendered to them, with their children not having ability to even go to school, having been in the country for about three to four months. We say, let's not forget those people as well, that they also need to get their lives in order. Okay. And I suppose... We're all acutely aware of the crisis in Afghanistan, but that's not the only war that people have been fleeing from, apart from what's happening in Ukraine. Oh, yes, yes. The, the, it's, it's been, uh, I mean, we have seen Afghanistan last year. We have seen Syria a, a few years ago, of which the government did promise to take 4,000 at that time. I don't think they've achieved that up to now from uh, 2015. Then Yemen... Uh, Ethiopia and, and many other countries like uh, Palestine, for instance, uh, we, have, we have seen what is happening there continuously. Mm. And uh, we are not seeing the same reaction uh, in terms of the government making sure that those people that are coming from those countries are also getting uh, fair and, uh, and uh, access to life. Uh, as the same as they are doing now. It's the first time we've seen them doing this, Mm. but we are saying that looking into what they are capable of doing, and it's something that we feel that they would have been able to do that for the other migrants or other uh, 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 asylum seekers and and, and refugees that come in this country. They are capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. We need to see them 
having able to take that child who has been stuck in a direct provision center or in an emergency center for three months with no hope of going to school, that they too want to go to school. Why do you think that is the case? Uh, you've described it as being somewhat hypocritical. Why, why, why do you think there is that hypocritical uh, approach to one set of refugees over another set of refugees? It's because it happens. It's a, it's a European country where it happens, and the reaction is, is just so swift uh, because it is a, a, a European country. And we know that it, it's war, and, and as I said, there's wars everywhere. And... Uh, the, the, the others, uh, at the, I mean, the, the, this tearing of, of, uh, of the refugees, like the others, are less, uh, need, uh, 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 less urgent than the others. It is, I don't know why it must be differentiated in that way, because when a person has come and declared that they want to seek for protection and they've got a chance to, for their cases to be heard, at this stage, people are here and they don't. They have not been even given a chance to state their case, and 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 get be processed and be part of the of, of the whole process. They are just in the limbo. They don't know when they are going to be called by the international protection mm. office to get their cases in the system. At the moment, they are just prima facie cases that have not yet applied for asylum. Uh, and is it like the situation? that people leaving Ukraine are experiencing? Because when they get out of the country and they cross the border into other countries, it seems as though the white Ukrainians are getting a better reception uh, than those uh, who have uh, different ascendancies. Oh, yes. I can tell you an example. There is a 17-year-old young boy who is uh, uh, from Ukraine and is stuck in Poland. All right, he's got you know Ukrainian uh, uh, papers and everything, but the Irish government refused that person to enter the state because it's not like a Ukrainian. And the treatment we have seen the treatment in terms of the priority, even on the emergency uh, situations in Ukraine, that the other Ukra- uh, 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 Ukrainians, what don't look like Ukrainians, get, they don't get the treatment that everybody gets. Mm. Well, it's it's interesting as well, I think, Lucky, that 10,000 people came to this country over the last four years seeking refuge. 10,000 people have come to this country over the last four weeks from Ukraine. There's about 10,000, uh, close to 11,000 people in direct provision at, at the moment, 10,000 people uh, in this country then from Ukraine who are being treated differently. They won't go to direct provision. Uh, and then uh, we're going to accept, it seems, or at least we're preparing to accept another 190,000 people from Ukraine and we will find space for them. It does seem a little bit peculiar yeah it is that is why we are really concerned about this this treatment and we call it as a, a clear inequality uh, at work here because if they cannot uh, deal with the people that are here in the country already for for many years in those numbers and they can be able to find resources and pull everybody in order to get to take care of of of, of these numbers from the ukrainian it's just uh, as I said, I don't want to be misunderstood as if I'm against uh, the treatment that people are giving to the Ukrainians. But the thing is, it must we must be seen to be treating people equally at all times. Once, once people have fled and they are here, they are already safe when they are in this country. They are already safe. 
there is no war here in Ireland. They are already safe. So it's important that the treatment is seen to be balanced Okay. people that seek protection. All right, listen, thanks uh, for making those points with us on the programme this morning. Lucky, uh, thanks uh, indeed for joining us for that matter. That's uh, Lucky Camboule, who is the co-founder of uh, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland group Massey. Now, let me bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, coming to us uh, today. We had Seamus and Dundalk on the phone saying, we need wages to reflect the cost of living and it needs to be in line with inflation so that people can afford to live. I understand it has been a tough time for many employers too after all of the lockdowns but something has to be done to help workers if this awful war continues uh, there will be further hikes and the question is how are most people going to be able to afford to live? Thanks uh, for that Seamus. Thanks as well to Susan in Drogheda who says I feel like I'm working just to pay bills there is nothing left for enjoyment, nothing left Uh, for socialising anymore. Even little treats for the children are having to be sacrificed. It's very tough as things are. Thanks uh, for sharing that with us, Susan. Paddy Duffy says, until bombs start to fall on Moscow, Putin will not stop. And I mean lots of them, lots of bombs, that is. A bit of his own medicine wouldn't go astray. NATO badly needs to grow a pair this is what they've been practising for for decades. What the hell are they waiting for? Uh, and when it comes to it, they're toothless. What the Russian army so far has proven is that they're useless, that NATO is useless. I take it Paddy means, and that's not to take away anything from the brave and courageous Ukrainians. By the way, I don't agree with what is being said by British intelligence about the Russians uh, and that they're bombing indiscriminately. They're being very discriminate in targeting civilians. Those that say Putin is nuts are all also wrong. He's just pure evil. The definition of pure evil is Putin. Thank you, Paddy Duffy, and everybody who has been in touch with us so far today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Taoiseach, Michael Martin, will chair the Cabinet meeting when government ministers meet today virtually by video link because he has COVID and remains in Washington. But there is a lot to discuss, including the prospect that 200,000 people will come here from the Ukraine and all of the pressures that already exist in this country and the pressures that will come on top of those because of the war and the ongoing problems as a result of that. Uh, But some good news for government to discuss today, and that's uh, this bid uh, for the 2028 European Championships. It seems almost a a foregone conclusion at this stage because there's no other bidders. Uh, And this could be very good for the country because as Paul Hosford reports in the Irish Examiner today, the Cabinet will be told that the tournament is expected to inject hundreds of millions of euro in extra spending here, depending on the number of games that is played. Paul Hosford is on the line. Good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, And the number of games has not been decided because the number of teams has not been decided. Yeah, so I I suppose UEFA, the European governing body for football, still hasn't decided whether this is going to be a 24 or or 32 team tournament. If you you think back as recently as as 2012, it was a it was a 16-team tournament, so that, that expansion is growing. But obviously, with more teams comes more games. I think that the difference would be 52 to, to 63 games, uh, and with that would mean extra hosting opportunities for for whatever stadiums in Ireland are chosen at the moment. It looks like it'll likely stick around Dublin, but there's there, there is the possibility that it could, that a game could be played in Parky Cueve, or, or or that you could see something maybe maybe in Turles if that gets redeveloped in time. 
Okay, uh, and that's uh, where the government support for this would come. Uh, I take it that there would be a level of investment, but uh, the hope is uh, that the return would be great. Yeah, and I suppose you've, you've hit on, on one of the, the main things there is that, is that government support comes because this is a very low uh, expenditure bid. It's not like we're looking to build six or seven new stadiums from scratch or, or that we would have to invest massively in, in a new public transport system uh, to, to go with this. The, the big attraction here is that you you would have, uh, we already have two world-class stadiums in, in Dublin and that they would be able to host the games without any real investment and the government spend then would come in in the likes of fan zones or, or you know, additional spending on, on public transport, but you wouldn't be, if it was in Dublin, you wouldn't have to build a new system from scratch just to cater for it. You're talking about about 150,000 extra people over uh, over uh, over the course of a month in, in this tournament mm. is what Cabinet is going to be told today. The, so essentially what the government is looking at this as is just a huge tourism uh, and sporting opportunity. Uh, the, the, the spend largely will come from, uh, you know, the upgrade of, of stadiums will, will come from the other um the, the other uh, governing bodies which are which are bidding that's the English FA the Scottish mm-hmm. FA the Welsh FA and, and the the IFA up north so there's no real uh, a drawback in terms of a, a government spending point of view on this it's not like uh, you know some of the other bids that have been floated mm-hmm. o- over the years where you would have to put in massive amounts of money to, to develop stadiums or to develop public transport links this is kind of seen as a as a no-brainer uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the the five governing bodies had looked at the 2030 World Cup bid. Um, the, I suppose the the feeling, the sense there was that there wasn't a massive appetite from FIFA to have a uh, a joint bid that was so uh, so spread out that you would be dealing with five different governing bodies. That means five different governments. Uh, you know, you would have to play the political game at, at five different levels. They, their preference is for one or two big hosts. So you 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 know. Mm-hmm. So countries that could kind of carry the can on on their own. Yeah. So when so last month the the, uh, the countries got together and kind of switched tack to this 2028 bid. Uh, expressions of interest have to be in by tomorrow. It looks mm-hmm. at the moment like there's no other bidders. Uh, yeah. it, 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 Is it a foregone conclusion? Because in these dark times, I, I think it really would be a, a fantastic piece of news and would give the country a, a great boost. Uh, but is it a foregone conclusion? Because uh, the expressions of interest close tomorrow and it appears that there's no other bidders. Does that mean that the bid will go uh, to Ireland and the UK? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, at the moment the the Russian uh, FA had looked at bidding UEFA, obviously, uh, because of their that country's invasion of Ukraine. They've suspended them from all football and competitions. They ended their bid. Turkey pulled out, said that they're not going to bid. Italy had said, had kind of said that it was mulling over bidding for both 2028 and 2032. Now it's decided that it's only going to bid for 2032. So I suppose the the, the government backing is it was kind of the the one hurdle that this bid had to clear and, and, and with with that rubber stamping coming today it mm. seems like the, the path is clear for, for Ireland and yeah, Ireland and the UK to, to host the, this tournament in, in 2028 it, barring obviously mm. you know UEFA has to run the rule over it but it looks like uh, that'll be April 7th it looks like on, on April 7th we'll, we'll officially be, be given the go ahead to, to 
host the tournament. Excellent, absolutely excellent. Uh, as you said, it appears at least to be a, a no-brainer. Uh, but just one of the issues uh, that uh, the government will grapple with today, and uh, some of them are not so easy uh, in terms of providing solutions. Uh, what about this figure of 200,000 people possibly coming to the country? How realistic is that, do you think? Well, I suppose there's a couple of things that you have to uh, think about here. Obviously, that's on a, a population basis. Ireland makes up about 2% of the EU. Um, so the, the thought process is that if 10 million uh, Ukrainian refugees end up in, in the EU, our, Ireland, on a population basis, will take in uh, 2% of that. that. That's how you end up at the 200,000 figure. Now, sources that I was speaking to yesterday said, that, look, it's very, very likely that a lot of people won't want to come to Ireland. They'll land in places like like Poland, or, or they might end up in, in Moldova, and they want to make home there because it's just it's just a lot closer. If you think, if you were mm. if the roles were reversed and you were fleeing uh, an invasion of, of Ireland, if you ended up in the UK, you probably wouldn't want to go further afield because culturally you'd be closer aligned. You'd just be closer in case there was a chance to go back. Um, so. There's a lot of people who won't want to come to Ireland, but of those that do, we we will be, uh, I suppose, we will be asked to, to pick up our, our share of it across the EU, and that that could mean up to up to two hundred thousand refugees based on that that ten million figure. Now, obviously, this all depends on how much longer the Russian invasion goes on for. Mm. If it, if it ends soon, if there if there if there was an end in sight, people could start to go home. But the longer people are. Yeah displaced the longer you know the the, the greater their need for a mm. permanent home comes and and that's what the what the government is is really trying to deal with today yeah. uh sources said to said to me yesterday that look we're still in crisis management mode uh, this mm. is a very new situation we don't have a, a a touchstone for this we've never dealt with a humanitarian crisis like this in the eu we've never had this many people displaced yeah. in, in a European country on the EU's borders. We've never had so many people come here who have links here uh, previously. They have familiar links or, or, you know, they have a link to, to Irish society already yeah. in, in such a, a short space of time. Well, so, so 10,000 people, I mean, which is the equivalent of uh, the amount of people in direct provision, asylum seekers here at the moment in the last few weeks. It's the same, actually, as the amount of people who have arrived into the country over the last four years and four weeks uh, as such. Uh, and we're talking uh, about possibly 200,000, uh, and that will be predominantly women and children. And if a third of them are adults uh, to add whatever that is, 80,000 people to the unemployment figures, to the housing list, to the medical card list, etc., etc. It really is incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's a massive, massive undertaking. And I think you know people are kind of people are kind of already kind of saying, Jesus, is there no plan here? Is there no long term plan? And you're kind of saying, look, this is a huge logistical undertaking. It takes mm. in every government department, every every factor every facet of Irish life is going to be affected by this. So no, there is no plan um that we had you know that we were sitting on that, that that government departments had in the back pocket because you just don't plan for a situation like this. But at the moment the I suppose the you know I've I've been out to Dublin Airport, I've seen how these how the the, the people who arrive here are processed. Mm. That system is working. Um it's working really, really well. Uh, people land here and within half an hour they have a PPS number they have accommodation if if they need it, but the I suppose it is going to create pinch points. Uh, one of the ones that we've already kind of got over was was St Patrick's Day. Uh, 
looking for hotel rooms in Dublin was, was tough for, for government departments because they were all booked out for Patrick's Day. Mm. Um, that's kind of eased after after the, the weekend, but getting into the summer, some hotels won't want to contract out for for housing refugees because they'll know that they'll make more money when tourists return uh, and you know last summer it wasn't a, it wasn't a huge international travel year because of tra- uh, travel restrictions and covid so this year seeing as a bounce back year for the hospitality industry will it want to for, will it want to contract out you know mm. on a flat rate to a government department a lot of people won't uh, so that will cause problems so that medium term and that long term plan you know we're, uh, Pascal Zona who said yesterday at, a, at an event I was at the cost things and, and kind of a, a longer term plan will take another couple of weeks uh, you know we're, they're hoping to have it in, in the next few weeks but it's still a, a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things that can't be answered just yet this, this, this thing is just happening too quickly it's moving too fast and, and the government is hoping to have that plan in place in the next in the next few weeks mm, Okay well uh, no doubt there'll be more today following the cabinet meeting and the doll will be sitting later as well for that matter so I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions uh, maybe not as many answers as there are questions as you say, Paul, because it's impossible to answer a lot of those questions as things stand and they'll unfold as time goes on. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, with that today. Paul Hosford, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to we govy as it is uh, to be branded this miracle diet weight loss drug which will see people lose around 20% of body fat in one year by injecting themselves on a weekly basis. There's been a lot of excitement uh, since uh, this was uh, announced and approved by the European Medicines Agency because there's a lot of people who are obese in this country. One in five of us apparently are obese. Uh, so this hopefully will be the solution. Professor Donald O'Shea, who's uh, the HSE's clinical lead for obesity, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us as always. Donald, will this be the solution for the one million people or so who are overweight in this country? Um, No, it's a big step forward um, and it's an important step forward for people who are living with obesity and people who are looking after people living with obesity uh, to actually have a treatment that works. We've not really had anything to deliver uh, effective weight loss to people who have complicated obesity. It's, it's not for anyone who's just a little bit overweight or indeed in the early kind of uh, stages of obesity um, without complications. And when I say complications, I mean high, high blood pressure, uh, type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea. Uh, it, it's those people that we will be targeting with, with uh, this uh, drug when it actually becomes available, which probably is going to be in uh, the second half of, of the year. Okay, and then the question is how will it be funded? Uh, it'll cost €250 Euro a, a month. That's money that uh, people won't have, of course, uh, in some circumstances uh, unless uh, it comes under the medical card scheme. That's right, and, and you know that's why introducing it for those who will truly benefit, i.e. Uh, people who have complicated obesity, uh, you know, that is something the HSE are committed to having available through the medical card scheme and uh, reimbursed under the drug payment scheme. Uh, so the cutoffs that are being used in the UK uh, by, uh, for, for the use of this drug are a body mass index over 35 plus one 
complication of obesity. Um, and, and I think it's highly likely that that's where we will be starting uh, in Ireland. As, as we get more um, evidence over time, uh, then you know th- those criteria may change. But when you have a, a disease that's affecting, as you point out, so many of the population, mm. you cannot uh, introduce a, a high-cost drug that is going to um, bankrupt <laughs> our, our, mm. our medical management budget uh, unless you have absolute evidence. And and. There's parallels with blood pressure. You know, 40 years ago, uh, we had almost no treatment for blood pressure. Uh, We had very crude treatments. And as we gradually understood blood pressure better and better, we were able to introduce, uh, you know, or develop uh, different classes of drugs to target uh, the blood pressure. And now we have seven or eight different classes of very effective uh, blood pressure lowering treatments hmm. um, and, and we know they're effective so this is only the beginning for managing obesity as the chronic disease that we know it is uh, it really is a, a landmark moment to have a drug we understand how it works you know it's it's uh, it's, it's based around a hormone that you release uh, from your own body every time you eat uh, but it's been developed into a drug now that can be injected once a week. And, yeah. and what that drug does is what the hormone does. It makes you feel full and it delays your uh, stomach emptying after a meal. And that combination uh, is is what's mainly associated with the uh, weight loss. And in combination yeah. with lifestyle, uh, you know, more movement and, and less and, and, and uh, improved uh, nutrition choices, uh, you're getting up to 20% weight loss. Not everybody will lose that, uh, but in those who respond well, uh, that's the the figure you're seeing. And I guess it's an indication of where medical science is going with all of this. Uh, I take that to be what you uh, were uh, implying there, that this will just get better and better and it'll become easier to tackle as time goes on because people really do struggle with it and they don't want to be obese, but they don't seem to be able to tackle it. Uh, but uh, with this particular drug, are you saying that if people are in that situation, they meet the criteria that you spelled out to us a, a moment ago, that in six months from now, they'll be able to get this drug uh, as a medical card patient uh, and that uh, they'll be able to look forward to losing weight. Uh, And does that mean that they'll have to continue using this drug for the rest of their life? Um, You know, um, that's an important um, question because when you have a chronic disease um, that's lifelong, then the treatment is long-term. So you don't go on a course of blood pressure tablets when you start blood pressure tablets it's for life you don't go on a course of cholesterol lowering tablets when you start them it's for life weight management uh, medication uh, we know from all the studies that have been done on all the inferior if you like predecessors of this uh, the minute you stop the drug uh, the weight the body goes back up to the weight it was originally. And and you said it yourself, body weight is not a choice. If somebody could choose to be uh, 10 stone instead of 18 stone, then they would be able, they would make that choice. So it's 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 not a choice. It's uh, and, and it's like your people can give blood uh, because they know that eight weeks after they give blood, uh, their blood count is right back up. 
to where it was. And they didn't control that. The body brought its important iron and haemoglobin stores right back up to where they were. Mm. Uh, and, and body weight is similarly tightly regulated. The body hates to lose weight and always wants to get back up to what was its best weight. And from there, the body's point of view, um, you know, energy storage is good and energy loss is not good. Okay. At the same time, I see some commentary uh, which uh, is suggesting that we should be doing more uh, to educate people uh, who are capable of keeping their weight under control uh, and not letting it get out of control by e- eating appropriately and exercising and lifestyle and so on. Yeah, and, and you know, the education piece that underpins prevention is really important and, and cannot be overemphasized. Um, I, and the analogy with malignant melanoma, which is the skin cancer you get um, if you have a genetic predisposition and you get too much energy from the sun for your genes, okay? Mm. Uh, if you get malignant melanoma, you are not told that your treatment is put on a hat and wear sunscreen. I would be struck off the medical register if that was the advice I gave to somebody with the disease of melanoma. Sure. So treatment and prevention are different things. We develop obesity because we have a genetic tendency and we get too much energy from our environment for our genes. There are plenty of people who are eating the same amount as, say, myself, Mm. who would have uh, kind of a high normal uh, BMI, uh, there are plenty of people eating the same amount of me as me who have a body mass index of 36. And to tell that person to eat less and move more as their treatment is as offensive as telling somebody with a melanoma uh, to put on sunscreen and wear a hat. Okay. We, we have to acknowledge that mm. prevention is different from treatment. Mm. And we do that for every other disease. Mm. And prevention applies to some people. It. Treatment is the only option for other people. Uh, oh, yeah, no, prevention oh, is yeah, the population yeah. measure. Yeah. Anybody uh, with lifestyle change can lose uh, 5% of their starting weight, uh, and that will give them health benefits. But if you're living with severe and complex obesity, uh, 5% is, number one, a bit more difficult to lose, and number two, uh, you know, uh, won't uh, be sufficient to give you the health benefits uh, that you need. Yeah. And that's what makes this so exciting. Uh, and uh, we look forward to it, to it being uh, available to so many people uh, who uh, will be uh, looking forward to losing that weight, uh, uh, which uh, they can't help, as you say, uh, Professor O'Shea. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Professor Donald O'Shea is the HSE's clinical lead for obesity. Now, thanks uh, to Theresa Riley, who's been emailing the programme saying, are you insane? We haven't been able to properly care for or treat people in direct provision and we have totally failed our own homeless. Generations of young people looking for a home and accommodation and now suddenly we have the wherewithal to accept up to 200,000 Ukrainians from a war that was easily avoided had Europe told America to stay out of Ukrainian affairs and to back off on Biden's deliberate aggressive NATO push towards Russia. 
Focus must be first on putting a stop to this war in Ukraine and on getting genuine independent brokers to bring together Ukraine and Russian diplomats together to make whatever concessions necessary to end it. USA, Israel, Australia, Canada and Europe must be kept out of any talks. The majority of countries in the world have not taken sides in the conflict, only predominantly white countries. So we must look to non-white countries to mediate and arbitrate a solution and keep it only between Ukraine and Russia, says Theresa. Thanks uh, for that, Theresa. Interesting thoughts and comments. Some other interesting thoughts and comments from the American president, the aforementioned Joe Biden. His back is against the wall and uh, he's now he's talking about new false flags he's setting up, including he's asserting that we, America, have biological as well as chemical weapons in Europe. Simply not true. I guarantee you. They're also suggesting that Ukraine has biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's a clear sign he's considering using both of those. There you go. That's uh, Joe Biden frightening to think that that might be right. Uh, Claire in County Meath texting us saying, great to see the Ukrainians coming. I hope the millions which are put aside for the health services not dipped into, though. Our government are in their own bubble. Long hours is the one thing they have. All overpaid with great perks. They must think people live on fresh air, says Claire. Jim and Navin says, uh, tell that man lucky uh, that uh, there's thousands of Irish people who can't get homes, lots of them in hotel rooms with young kids. Uh, and uh, it's wrong, Jack says, uh, to be comparing the Ukrainians to others. Uh, but I think that's... Uh, <laughs> what uh, Lucky uh, was doing, Lucky Cambulet, who was saying uh, that uh, it's wrong to treat one uh, refugee differently to another. Uh, James Andrada says the reason we're having uh, this refugee difference is uh, that this is a social media war. The people of the world are being bombarded with images, whether they're true or false. They're still in our faces day in and day out, says James. Thank you indeed. Deirdre Kell says uh, that they should make mask wearing mandatory uh, because of uh, the amount of COVID cases. And we'll be talking about that in the next few minutes, Deirdre, if you stay with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. It seems to be a second wave of Omicron. Uh, the COVID figures are through the roof. 64,000, just under 64,000 new cases over the course of uh, the last five days. Uh, the highest uh, number of uh, people in hospital for some time, 1,300 people in hospital with COVID. Uh, but severe illness uh, and indeed critical care uh, is not that much of concern. Just 49 people in ICU. Uh, but uh, this is undoubtedly putting pressure on the health service. Let's talk to John McGamley, who's uh, the industrial organiser with SIPTU's Health Division. Good morning to you, John, and thanks for joining us. Uh, to deal with so many people if they have a contagious disease in hospital settings. Yeah, uh, good morning, Michael. Yeah, the um, obviously you've uh, alluded to the figures there, which have I think are some of the worst figures for quite some time in terms of hospitalisation, um, and this is coupled with an overcrowding crisis, which um, has seen figures uh, or uh, presentations in hospitals. Uh, akin to pre-pandemic levels. So at the moment, uh, certainly SIP2 is calling on the HSE and the Department of Health uh, to, to call this an emergency. Um, 
on the basis of, of both the increase now of COVID cases, but also the overcrowding situation as well. Right, and this is feeding into the overcrowding, I take it, because people need to be isolated. Uh, when uh, you talk about 1,300 people in the hospital with COVID, a lot of them are there for other reasons. But how do you deal with a patient? Let's say somebody's in to have a hip replacement and they're tested as people are all the time in the hospital and they test positive for COVID. Well, I mean, this is the difficulties and challenges facing healthcare workers uh, within the hospital settings at the moment is, is about how, how do you deal with both an increase in, in numbers presenting in hospitals and to deal with the ongoing pandemic. And uh, I mean, there's 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 a you know there's a view out there that the pandemic is over, that uh, things have sort of settled down. Well, I mean, that's not, that's not, uh, the figures would show that that's not true. And certainly our members working in the hospital setting uh, are, are well aware that, that the crisis has, has continued. Um, the, the difficulty now is that as, as you know, as people turn to other matters, that these things may be, uh, you know, forgotten about and the, the, the levels of attention and care given to the health service over the last, uh, you know, two years uh, you know, eyes and, and minds might uh, and move on to something else. And certainly from SIPTU's point of view, well, you know, we we are certainly calling on the HSE, the Department of Health, to make sh- uh, to, to, to give the full attention to what's happening in there, call the situ- situation an emergency, put in emergency measures to deal with what's happening at the moment. Because, you know, healthcare workers have had two years uh, of, uh, you know, very difficult and challenging two years. They put their shoulder uh, against the wheel to try to, uh, to to keep the health service uh, going, and uh, we can't uh, we can't uh, you know uh, step away from it now and, uh, and pretend that the thing uh, that the pandemic is over. Okay, and what are the emergency measures SIPTU would like to be put in place? Well, certainly um, in relation to overcrowding in the hospitals, we we would certainly see that there needs to be a focus in. On uh, you know discharged uh, discharges from hospital um, to, to help relieve the uh, um, the overcrowding, particularly in the community. Uh, additional funding for um, you know home care packages, uh, primary care, uh, and uh, you know to, to make available other means for people to attend and get treated as opposed to just going to emergency departments. Uh, I think there's a, a, a main focus on you know. The, People see emergency departments as the answer to to, to, to deal with uh, the issues, but there's lots of other uh, areas where people can be sent and dealt with, and I just don't think they they are being highlighted enough in terms of community. So there needs to be focus on the community. There also needs to be a looking at uh, well, do we need to stop elective care uh, for a period of time to uh, deal with the overcrowding crisis? Uh, is there elements, uh, and I know that selective care has been cancelled a, a number of times over the last two years, but is there elements that can be can be dealt with to try to deal with the present crisis at the moment? Um, and so they're, they're the sort of measures that we would be looking at. Certainly there needs to be a, a much higher focus in, on care w- uh, in the community dealing with issues instead of the answer just being sending people to the emergency department. Mm. And uh, the pressure on the emergency department, uh, I suppose, is signified by the 570 people who've been admitted to hospital, but there's no bed for them and they're on trolleys. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, when it comes to the pressure uh, on hospitals, it's not just the amount of patients coming in, it's the amount of staff available to treat them and I take it there's a high level of absenteeism as a result of COVID. 
Yeah, well, it, uh, I mean, it, the COVID comes in waves in terms of, of, of healthcare workers who, you know, are at the, the face of dealing with uh, uh, these issues. Um, certainly, from SIP2's point of view, we would and have argued on numerous occasions for a speeding up of the process in filling deficits within the health service. Um, it, it's it's shocking and, and uh, at this stage that it still takes a whole period of time to fill a position where you can't advertise a position until someone, say, leaves, when you know there's retirements coming up and you still can't sort of plan for that and put uh, mechanisms in place to, to recruit, to fill that until the person has actually walked out the door, leaving a deficit. Now, there, there are issues that are, are uh, you know, logistic issues that can be sorted and uh, if there was a will to sort them. So the recruitment process is a big issue within the within the HSC. Um, you know, in terms of filling vacancies as quick as possible. Now, obviously, we also need to incentivise people in terms of staying within uh, within the Irish Health Service as well. And look, there needs to be discussions with the with the health unions in relation to making sure that we keep the people that are there, incentivise their work and deal with the issues that, that are presently in place. Mm. And what about emergency measures outside of uh, the hospital and outside of healthcare facilities uh, for that matter? Nobody wants to go back uh, to lockdown measures. The INMO suggesting uh, that uh, face masks should be mandatory again to stop the spread of the disease. Is that something SIPTO is supporting? We would we'd happily discuss any measure that would uh, assist in relation to relieving pressures on the um, on the health service. Obviously, I, I've, we've no, we haven't sat down and sort of worked out a particular um, view on measures outside of, of the health service. But certainly, we have ongoing engagements with uh, you know health providers, HSC, and in relation to. Uh, measures within within the within the workplaces, but um, certainly as I've uh, indicated there, I think there's a, a view that the pandemic is over. Um, it certainly is not over, and you, you only have to go into any sort of hospital to know that it's uh, it's adding to the uh, the overcrowding, uh, which has returned to pre-pandemic uh, figures. Mm. Okay, we'll leave there for the moment, John. Thank you very much indeed. John McGamley, industrial organiser with SIPTU's Health Division. Now, uh, let's uh, go back uh, to the war and, of course, getting into Mariupol is now completely impossible. Getting out uh, is what so many people are trying to do and it's absolutely impossible. Uh, what happens in uh, the worst war-torn city in Ukraine? Uh, time will tell, but uh, there's concern for people right across Ukraine, but particularly in Mariupol uh, and the 300,000 people who are trapped there. Hopefully uh, there will be some resolution as a result of what Vladimir Zelensky has, has said today uh, about agreeing not to join NATO. But in the meantime, the humanitarian effort to bring aid Two people in Ukraine continues. Yesterday, the Red Cross tried to get into Mariupol with supplies unsuccessfully. Uh, and uh, the president of the International Red Cross, Francesco Rocca, then spoke uh, to people outside of the city. What happened with the convoy uh, who is trying to go to Mariupol, Red Cross? He's stuck. Stuck. No access. So they, are, well, they, are, they, 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 they can go. So from uh, the Ukrainian Red Cross side, they are still waiting the green light 
but uh, unfortunately so far and this is the news of this morning uh, they, they they have no access in the in the areas uh, which is uh, of course you know they, 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 there are uh, very tough ongoing operations in the Mr. Rocca also described what life is like for people who are in Mariupol. The situation uh, in Mariupol uh, is very difficult. We have uh, we have no access in Mariupol, and when we talk about uh, humanitarian access, it's not about uh, only about evacuation, uh, but it's also about uh, logistics. It's also about to bring uh, relief, food. As you know, hundreds of thousands are stuck without uh, electricity, water, and unfortunately the possibility to provide them the support that they need. No electricity, no water, no food in some circumstances. And if the Red Cross can't get in to help those people, what can the Red Cross do in Ukraine now? Now we are focusing uh, on uh, on those, the IEPs, so those who, are, uh, who fled the, the affected areas uh, to live in shelters, uh, in, uh, in the house of their relatives, uh, in, uh, in many, many cities. Only here in the, in the region of um, Chernitsi, there are more than uh, 300,000 people that uh, are stuck, and maybe with the hope to, to go back home uh, in a few days. And this is also our hope. And uh, the International Red Cross may be limited in how it can help people, but it is determined to help as many people as possible. Uh, everyone is so committed to serve those in need, still there is a need. So we will continue to provide uh, relief and support uh, to all the IDPs and when it will be possible immediately in Mariupol and in the other areas where, where we have no access now. So we hope that the parties will find an agreement to give the humanitarian access uh, as the Geneva Convention uh, should protect. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, it seems not happening. Mm, seems not. That's uh, the president of uh, the International Red Cross, Francesco Rocca, speaking yesterday. Now, thanks to Frank, who's been texting us this morning, and he says Joe Biden said only last week that he had Irish blood, but he wasn't stupid. He must think we Irish are stupid. That was not a nice statement to make, especially coming from the American president with Irish blood. I don't think he meant it that way, Frank. Uh, I think he certainly has uh, plenty uh, of blood from the locality, uh, a man uh, who traces his roots back to the coolies uh, and very proud of it for that matter. But Frank, thank you indeed for your text to the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. So 10,000 refugees have arrived in Ireland over the last number of weeks and that number could increase to 100,000 and the Cabinet meeting today uh, being advised to prepare for accepting some 200,000 Ukrainian refugees into this country. Now, Duras is an independent, non-profit, non-governmental organisation that works to support and promote the rights of migrants in this country. Its CEO is John Lannan, who's on the line with us once again this morning. And John, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, we're talking about a monumental challenge if this transpires to be the case. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's it's a frightening, catastrophic situation in Ukraine. Millions of people are fleeing. About ten thousand have made it to Ireland already, and we're we're stretched in terms of accommodation, in terms of providing services and supports to them. Um, if the numbers rise to the levels that are being mentioned, um, we we will be monumentally stretched. Having said that, it is our obligation to to 
exception where it come all refugees that, mm. that may wish to, to come here to seek protection. But it's it's a struggle already. Hotels are filling up. Every available building is, is being looked at in terms of beds and, and we're now looking here in Ireland at putting beds into the open spaces or, or buildings or convention centres if, if the numbers increase. Tell us uh, about uh, the people who are coming here, if you would, John, uh, predominantly women and children? It's pre- it is predominantly women and children, but not exclusively so. Um, a lot of people, or most, are, are just coming with the very bare essentials, what they're wearing in many cases. They need a toothbrush when, when they arrive because they've had to flee without one. Um, some speak English, not all do, so English classes is, is one of the, the, the first essential requirements. Um, people are in shock, they've been traumatised by what they've experienced. They, in many cases, haven't had the opportunity to process it yet, in terms of, and, and of course, they, like the rest of us, don't know if or when they'll be able to return to their country. Language could prove to be a really big problem because the vast majority of Ukrainians don't speak English and I gather the ones who have come here so far are English speaking to a large degree and that's what attracted them to this country because they can speak the language because they family here reasons like that but if you go from 10,000 to 200,000 and the majority of the 200,000 can't speak English how are we going to provide classes for them? certainly quite a challenge and we know that there are waiting lists in the um, education and training boards already we know that there are other programs um, there are other mechanisms kind of that, that, that are used but one of the things that we've actually just done in recent months is to develop an online education platform called CERED which we'll be ramping up now in order to provide English classes online to people from Ukraine. It's available to, to refugees and migrants from any background, but we're looking specifically to um, d- design and customise that for people from Ukraine. Mm. So th- there are, I mean, that's just one of the many services and supports that yeah. are needed. Access mm. to medical cards is another one. You know, healthcare in general is an issue. Getting children into schools is, is, is another matter as well that's high on the agenda for, for a lot of the people arriving. Mm. I take it that some of uh, the challenges will be insurmountable. Um, if we well, get into that, if we get into that sphere where there's two hundred thousand people, like we're we're talking about increasing the population by around four percent, I think, if two hundred thousand people were to come to the country. Um, indeed, and and I guess we're we're in the area of of, of speculation. It's it's difficult mm. to know how many will arrive. At, at this point in time, if we do get hundreds of thousands, then we're really going to look at measures that have not been put in place already. And and we, we would be looking at a situation where, as I said, you know, convention centres, community halls would be used to with, with beds for, for people who arrived here. We do know from the last 20 um, years, 22 years of, of direct provision that People living in institutionalised settings, trying to bring up children there, is is quite, you know, it's it's not it's it's not a good environment to be in. It's it's quite detrimental to people. So we we would have an even bigger challenge if we have um, so many hundreds of thousands of people living in those congregated settings. Mm, and there appears uh, to be consideration being given by government to scrapping uh, the need uh, to go through the planning process to build housing, to make housing available quickly for people. Um, in, in 
yeah, and, and, and there will be quite a lot of measures that will need to be put in place. Um, two, two of the opportunities that do exist at the moment are student accommodation, which will come on stream um, at the end of the, the college semesters now in five to six weeks. Another possibility is holiday homes. Um, now, I know that the Tanishta has said that people cannot expect to be compensated financially for taking Ukrainians into their homes. But we're spending quite a lot of money we'll be on, on hotel beds at the moment in, in the country. And why not disperse that to people who have holiday cottages mm. to incentivize them to be the, the, their um, houses available? Because in many cases, these are in towns that have got, you know, they're, they're well serviced, they're well set up and, and it could be part of the solution but mm. again you know we're going to need to look at a lot of different options here when it comes mm. if it comes to those large numbers of hundreds of thousands yeah, well, We know the problems uh, people have when they live in the hotels from the homelessness situation in this country and just to have your own kitchen and to have separate bedrooms and that sort of thing are hugely important for people They, they are and I mean we certainly recognise that in an emergency situation getting people you know, a bed and getting a, a roof over their heads is, is is one of the most basic things and we need to provide that. But we do need to be looking at, at options to be able to move people in, into more longer term or um, acceptable accommodation. Um, I mean, we, we also need, and this is where, you know, nationally and, and locally and right down to community level, there are things that we can do and communities have been really positive, con- responding constructively, getting donations, doing everything they can for people that have already arrived. But we also need at the national and at the international level to be doing everything we can to try to reach some sort of resolution to what's happening in Ukraine mm. and to help to pull back from war and ensure that the, the people of Ukraine have a country that would be safe to go back to. Well, that, that is an interesting point uh, because even if the war was uh, to end tomorrow, uh, the challenge that it has already caused wouldn't end tomorrow or in the short term because uh, in a lot of circumstances there are no homes to go back to. Yes, and, and there, there will certainly be a reconstruction um, job um, that will be terribly significant in, in Ukraine as well. And this always happens after war. And it's, it's you know, the, the, the human cost is huge, but then the cost in terms of infrastructure, in terms of services and all of that is huge as, as well. And, and this is, you know, I guess this, this is something that, you know, Ukraine has not kind of been able to think about yet they need to get to a point where the you know, the, the frightening situations that people are in in Mariupol and are in, in other towns and cities is um, is, is ended and, and that some form of, of dialogue and some form of resolution can be undertaken that will, will lead to, to a place that they can get back to. But mm. but in the meantime, you know, we, we certainly have responsibilities here, not just to people from Ukraine, but to people seeing from more persecution in any part of the world to provide mm. them with protection and sanctuary. Absolutely. Um, tell me a little bit more about uh, the Ukrainian people who've already arrived in uh, this country. Uh, have uh, they uh, lived through the war or escaped with war behind them, if you understand what I mean? Uh, did they manage to get out in time before the bombs started to land? Um, yes, yeah, so it's 
it, it varies quite a bit. Obviously, the people who've made it to Ireland have been able to get out of the country through different routes. They've been able to afford a fighter or a way of getting to Ireland. The first people who arrived, um, many of them had family or had contacts here in Ireland already. But increasingly now we're getting to a point where most of the people who are arriving don't have connections with Ireland already. Some speak English, um, some don't. Um, and it, it, it varies. But as we said, you know, there are grandmothers, there are mothers, there are children, um, primarily in, in the, the cohorts that are coming into mm. the country. I suppose what I'm wondering about is... Uh the psychological impact uh, that war has on people. Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a lot of people listening to us now who can't look at the television because it's so upsetting from the comfort of their sofa. Uh, but when you actually experience what happens in a, a war zone firsthand, it's not the sort of thing that you forget very quickly and it's going to have a, a deep impact on you. And uh, undoubtedly, there will be people who will be in need of psychological services. Absolutely. I mean, the... The experiences that people have had are traumatising. You know, the, the journeys that they've had to make to, to come to Ireland are you know, further um, difficult for, for them. Also, people still have family members back in Ukraine. And this is hugely worrying for people who, who arrive here. And it's hugely difficult in many cases to reconcile the fact that you might have escaped, but other family members are still back there in the thick of a really terrible and, and frightening war. But as you say, the, um, the, the impacts for individuals and, and for children who, who have, have experienced what they've seen in Ukraine and the devastation of bombs and buildings being, being destroyed, who have made it to, to Ireland, will need supports. Um, in, in, in the coming months and and perhaps even longer. Um, and, and everything, you know, we're, we, we need to be looking at everything from, you know, arts-based and creative arts therapies for for children. We need to be looking at psychological supports for them and for, for adults. There, there's going to be a lot of work to, to do here. But again, I, I'd emphasise that this is something that we should be providing for every protection applicant who has come to Ireland from an environment where they've experienced war, they've experienced persecution. We do have 7,000 people who are still in direct provision. Many, if I'm not saying most, who have been traumatised by their past experiences and we need to provide the same level of mental health supports and services for them as we do for people who come from Ukraine. Indeed, we were speaking with Lucky Kambule, who uh, uh, I'm sure you know has been uh, saying that there's a certain level of hypocrisy in terms of how Ireland is treating war refugees from Ukraine, as the case may be, and refugees fleeing from war in other parts of uh, the world uh, because uh, they've been left in direct provision uh, and so on. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a lot of support uh, for what you're doing in, in Duras, uh, but I'm sure, like all of the agencies working with uh, the refugees, Duras is stretched to the limit at the moment. John, what can people do to help? We are. So we'd encourage people to go to our website, www.doris.org, and people can um, donate there. They, they can click in the button to give us a financial donation. We're, we're also working with other organizations to um, 
coordinating to draw on the the generous offers of donations of skills of of anything that that people can give we are recommending for people who have accommodation to offer that they go to the Irish Red Cross to to pledge um, a room or or a house if they if they have one available but you know i think it's it's um, encouraging to see how the Irish um, people have risen to the challenge already, as I said, you know, with local communities coming to the support of people who arrive in hotels or in their community, doing what they can, halls being open just as meeting places. And, and you know, while the, in many cases, the GP services, the pharmacists are stretched, we are finding ourselves in Doris and in other organisations then looking to try to join the dots and to try to find ways to provide the, the level of service and support that, that people need. I think ultimately here at local level, you know, we, we need interagency groups that have resettlement workers, intercultural workers, support workers in place. This needs to be coordinated by the state, but we and in Doris and in other organisations and communities can play their part then in terms of the the support and the assistance we provide. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning, John. John Lannan is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duras. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kate Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And we're going to start uh, with undoubtedly what will be good news for one of our, our listeners in Dundalk who may have lost a large amount of money in the last couple of weeks because it's been handed into the Garda Station. That's right, Michael. So um, on Wednesday, March the 9th, a sum of money was found in Dundalk Town Centre. Now, this money was handed into in Garda Shikona. It is currently in Dundalk Garda Station, and we're extremely eager to return this cash to its owner. As you say yourself, you know, hopefully this is good news for somebody out there that has lost the sum of money. If you have lost it, if you believe it's yours, then we would really ask you to contact the Garda in Dundalk on 042-938-8400. Okay, and good to know that uh, somebody was honest enough to find it and hand it into the Garda station. Always good to hear news like that. Uh, Not such good news, though, uh, in terms of three burglaries uh, that happened recently. I take it there's a connection between these. They all happened on the same day uh, and a a, a number of places hit in Mead West and going into West Mead for that matter. That's right, Michael. Now, we don't know for sure if they're linked, but it's something that we're looking into at the minute, just because of, I suppose, the modus operandi that was used. Now, all the houses um, that were involved, they were in Rathmoylan, Old Castle and Castle Pollard. These burglaries all took place last Tuesday on March the 15th. Um, in the early uh, early afternoon, I suppose, of that day, um, the first burglary took place at 12.40 in Rathmoylan, the second at five past one in Collinstown in Castle Pollard, and the third at half one in Old Castle. Now, all the burglaries sort of bore a striking resemblance, and as far as the modus operandi was, con- uh, was concerned, um, we believe that two males were involved in these burglaries. They appeared to be quite smartly dressed. Um, they were um, approaching the, the homes, they were knocking on the door, and they were actually trying to convince the homeowners that they were indeed plainclothes detective guardy. And now they would inform the homeowners that they were investigating possible burglaries in the area or possible recoveries of large sums of money. So I suppose quite plausible. Um, These men then were invited into the homeowner's home and whilst there, 
one would perhaps maybe search the property with the consent of the owner whilst the other would maybe steal any cash they come across. Now, we would sort of urge anybody that may have been in any of these areas and noticed anything suspicious, uh, suspicious meals or a suspicious vehicle, we would ask you please to contact Trim Garda Station on 046 928 or indeed the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 Now, as I said, you know, we're unsure mm. at present if they are connected, but it's something that the detective units in Mullingar and Trim are looking into and I suppose while we're here we would just like to advise all homeowners you know that you should be very very careful about letting anybody into your home unless you're absolutely certain that you know who the person at the door is then please please don't let them into your home more often than not if Gardy are calling out to speak to you um, a member in uniform will be sent now if it is somebody that's in the detective unit please ring your local Ring your local Garda station or ring 999, you know, if you have any doubt, and we will be able to verify over the phone if in, indeed it is a Garda member that wishes to speak with you at your home. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, we could uh, imagine that they called to somebody else's home uh, who didn't let them in, and uh, I'm sure you'd be very happy to hear from them or, as you say, anybody uh, who has any information uh, about that spate of activity. Uh, that happened last Tuesday. Uh, we're going to Navin now, where Garda are hoping to recover a van that was yeah, so this was um, a Volkswagen van. Now we have a partial registration of it, which was 735. Now this van was taken from the Ardbracken area of Navan sometime between 7am on Friday last, that was March the 11th, and 7am on Monday, 14th of March, sorry, last Monday. So we're urging people, if you know the whereabouts of this vehicle, or if you have any information in relation to the theft of the vehicle, then please contact Navan Garda Station. And the number for Navan Station is 046 903 6100. Okay, to Trim, uh, where there's been a theft from a vehicle. That was right. So this theft from a vehicle, again, this was on Tuesday, March the 15th. So it, heard, it, it took place in the Lackanash area of Trim and it took place at approximately half eight in the evening on Tuesday the 15th of March. So anybody who was in the area at the time who noticed anything suspicious, anybody acting suspicious, any vehicles acting suspiciously, then please contact Trim Garda Station. Um, and the number for Trim again is 046 Okay, well I suppose all of uh, the state services and all of the arms of uh, the state uh, will be uh, looking to see what challenges uh, come about as a result of the war and indeed the amount of people who will be seeking refuge in this country and you've uh, some special information for Ukrainian refugees who have come to this country. That's it, Michael. I suppose um, it's been highly publicised the last while. You know, the, the large amount of Ukrainian citizens who've been forced to flee and who've arrived in Ireland. So, Angarda Shikana have recently launched an information sheet um, for anybody that's come to Ireland, um, you know, after this war. Uh, this information sheet is available in Ukrainian, in Russian and in English. And I suppose it's to introduce any Ukrainian citizens to the working of our police force. Um, these leaflets will be available from all Garda stations. So if you have travelled from Ukraine or if you've come into contact with somebody who has fled Ukraine, please, please let them know that Angarda Shikana has a number of specially trained ethnic liaison officers who may be assistance, of assistance to you if you need them. These officers are available in all Garda divisions um, throughout the country. And I suppose then if anybody does arrive in Ireland and they're a victim of a crime, if um, you know this is urgent and you see a crime taking place, then we would ask you to call 999 or 112. Um, 999 calls and 112 calls are always given the highest priority and they're handled by highly trained call takers. 
you know, naturally emergency and life-threatening calls will be given priority and we will try our very best to get to you within 15 minutes in urban locations and as soon as we possibly can in rural locations. Mm. Any non-urgent calls or general inquiries should be made to your local Garda station and a list of these can be found on our website which is www.garda.ie. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme with thanks to Garda K. Patterson of Dundalk Garda Station. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.